This is The Author's Voice, new fiction from The New Yorker. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. On this episode of The Author's Voice, we'll hear Joy Williams read her story, Stuff, from the July 25, 2016 issue of the magazine. Joy Williams is the author of five story collections and four novels, including Breaking and Entering and The Quick and the Dead. Her collection, 99 Stories of God, was published by Tin House this month. Now here's Joy Williams. Stuff. It was December, and he was in the windowless consultation room of his doctor's office. A young man with a stunningly high forehead was informing him that he had lung cancer and would die, the certainty of this being considerable, soon. The doctor was not familiar to Henry. The one he usually saw was at a baptism or a wedding that afternoon. Henry wasn't sure which, the information having been relayed to him by a receptionist hastily swallowing her lunch. He asked the young man with the intimidating forehead if he would kindly repeat what he had just said. The words were repeated, and Henry's first thought was that his own doctor had been too embarrassed to tell him. His second thought was that this was unlikely. I call them work sticks, Henry said, somewhat defensively. They're why I'm able to write so much. Really? What sort of thing do you write? I wouldn't have been able to concentrate without cigarettes. There you go, then, the doctor said. I write a column for the community paper, the Zephyr. Every week I write a column. I have for years. I see, the doctor said. Henry wrote about the seasons, companionable winter, radiant spring, mellifluous summer, and the tinglingly vivid fall. He wrote about hydrangeas, though he was wearying of hydrangeas, and twice a year he was dependent upon to write about the equinox, the moment when a precise division between day and night occurs should not pass unnoticed. He wrote about screened porches and baked bean pots. He enjoyed a modest but loyal following as one of the town's steadfast and honorable lights. Only Yolanda Piper, Archon, Intercessor, an indefatigable defender of the rights and needs of at-risk teens, particularly those suffering from anger issues, could be considered his peer. The citizenry depended on the two of them to do the heavy lifting of optimism and the good works necessary for the diffident functioning of the social contract. Funny name for a newspaper. What? Henry said. Why? The doctor stared at him. You made it to 85. That should be a consolation. No, no, I'm not 85. It says, the doctor frowned. This sheet's been misfiled, sorry. Those girls at the desk, all they think about is getting laid. Bless them, Henry thought warmly. The doctor turned to a computer and tapped savagely on the keyboard for a few moments. You're 63, he reported. That's me, Henry cried. You have lung cancer as well. A bit more advanced, actually. The doctor stared at him again. Sorry about the mix-up. In the parking lot, Henry got into his car, put on his glasses, and harnessed himself into his seat. Click it or ticket. He was the little boy who had once bought an instructional record, How to Teach Your Canary to Sing. Now he was going to die. 
Only last year he had been on the cover of the telephone directory, looking kind, fit, and comfortable. This was an honor that continued to elude Yolanda and her group of thuggish youths. He had been supplanted this year by an artist's rendering of a new wind farm, green pastures, sleek white blades, blue sky, a pleasing evocation of the extraterrestrial and the ecologically sound. Except that little appeared freshly green or white or blue anymore. Everything looked increasingly worn and shorn, though no one was saying anything about it. That was why his columns were still being tolerated. He wasn't bringing it to anyone's attention either. He had researched the winds of the world for a column about the smoky sou'wester, and he liked to recount them silently when he felt a little low. Sirocco, Cordonazzo, Harmattan, Pampero, Levanter, Shemal, Simoon. The parking attendant wanted $21. Henry had crossed the uncompromising boundary between the first and second hour while he was idling in the lot thinking about his canary record. He hadn't even had a canary. He had hoped to have a canary. He had the shameful urge to inform the attendant that he had just been told he had lung cancer and was going to die. Perhaps the fee would be waived. But he suspected that the fee would not be waived. This sort of thing must happen all the time. If the recently condemned weren't required to pay their fair share, the lot would bring in no money at all. He wished it were May. He'd always enjoyed writing about May with its confidence of daylight, the inviting lassitude of the sea. But it was not May. It was twelve days before Christmas, and the daylight looked no more certain of what it was doing than he was. Henry's Christmas columns were never his best. Dancing lights, hope and praise, the human hunger for realization through the symbolism of outward signs, that sort of thing. He'd authored some terribly insipid ones in the past, though even worse were the inaccurate ones, like the piece about the song Guardian Angels, the one Mario Lanza had belted out so beautifully. Henry had always thought that the Guardian Angels were the bears, and not the beings who shoot away the bears. His credibility had taken a hit on that one. This year, though, given his newly acquired station, he could write a piece about his last Christmas. It could be heartwarming, maybe even become a classic. He'd write a column about buying a last Christmas tree and then show it to his old mother in that frightful home she was in, and in that way inform her that he was about to die. He'd never been able to tell her anything straight out, and this was no exception. She might not be overly alarmed, being close to a hundred years of age herself and the one who was supposed to be dying, though she never did. Between Henry and his home, a townhouse of no distinction, lay the only Christmas tree lot accredited by the town, which was managed each year with sturdy efficiency by Yolanda Piper and her at-risk charges. Henry swept decisively into the lot, apparently without signaling, as his fellow travelers fell in fury upon their horns. Five surly youths wearing red raglan smocks and merry tasseled hats turned toward him in astonishment. He exited the car and smiled broadly, his teeth creaking, 
Merry Christmas, he screamed. I love Christmas, a girl said to no one in particular, Santa Claus and all that shit, but I'm not as happy as I think I should be. Can you help me? I want the biggest and most beautiful tree you have, Henry declared. That one will do. He gestured toward a spruce thrust haphazardly in a bucket, its core a mandela of yellowing needles. Yolanda appeared, out of nowhere, it seemed. The great essayist, she said in greeting. How's the bears? The tree had already been hauled from the bucket and thrown at the feet of a boy wearing tight peg jeans and a t-shirt. Yolanda was always provided with a youth from juvenile detention to fresh cut the stumps, which seemed to Henry quite redundant as far as the tree was concerned. The miscreant's duties also included trussing the tree in plastic webbing shot from a compressor for the journey toward its temporary final home. Yolanda, Henry said earnestly, Merry Christmas. A pine needle protruded from her mouth. Let me ask you something, Mr. Essayist. Do you think the trees smell as good this year? Oh, I do. They don't smell at all. Some beetle's been after them in the field. You're whiffing nostalgia, my friend. There were several lines of verse tattooed on the delinquent's arm, though they weren't called delinquents anymore, of course. Against his better judgment, Henry strained to read them. He shuffled closer and silence sounds no worse than cheers after earth has stopped the ears. Hausman, on this blighted youth, he was so happy. Back off, creep, the boy said. This is in honor of my friend, not for creeps. He was an athlete, and he died young. Henry was beside himself. Here was a connection across the cruel and indifferent ages. Make this prevert back off, yo. It's pervert, Lawrence. How many times do I have to correct? She regarded Henry. Henry, she said. Yolanda, he was still somewhat ecstatic. How do you want your life to be remembered, Henry? The youth resumed indelicately sawing away at the stump. Oh, I have no illusions that it will be remembered, he said modestly. He looked down at his shoes. They were formal shoes with his own feet concealed inside. This puzzled him for a moment. Why were you set loose on this earth, Henry? Do you have any idea? The shoes were really something, shiny. Get out of here, Yolanda commanded. Go home and write about your buttercups, you foolish old man. He had never written about buttercups, never. He had warmed over the dead gods of the months, and he had written about wasps a couple of times, wrung some wonder from contemplating their world of insectual intent, the papery nests, the cells of mathematical perfection, the nurses and the workers, the grubs that waited for transformation behind their silken doors, their black eyes perfectly visible. One column had been particularly good, something about wasps in the fall, crawling into houses or garages to prolong their lives a little. In such a last retreat, was that how he had put it? But it is not meant that they should continue. Their ingenuity is in vain. But that didn't sound like him. Maybe it was someone else who had written about wasps. 
He felt blue. He was dying, and the doctor, or whoever that had been, hadn't even given him a prescription to fill. Still, he felt fortunate that he didn't have that moribund bound tree in his trunk. The teens at risk hadn't had an opportunity to stuff it in there while Yolanda was berating him. He drove reluctantly home. In the parking slot allotted to him in his townhouse cluster, two men had set up a card table and were soliciting signatures for a proposal to give a tax credit to households with guns. They had occupied this slot before. They seemed comfortable with the assumption that it was the ideal space for their endeavor and had assured Henry that this was but the first step of the process. After they had won the tax credit, they would petition for the elimination of taxes altogether because of the infeasibility of collecting them now that everyone had guns. They nodded manfully at Henry as he drove past. He had never admitted to them that paying taxes provided him a quiet pleasure. He turned back onto the highway to the indignant screams of horns and drove to Ambiance, the home where his mother resided. He would forego waiting to tell her about his condition until he had written the Christmas column. He didn't want to write that column. He thought the place was called Ambiance, but the name never stuck with him. It was the banner in the lobby that had made a persistent impression. Just to be here is so much. Rilke. Rilke. The things corporations got away with. His mother was a bit of a celebrity at Ambiance because her previous home had been destroyed in a flood. She and the five other occupants of Wing 3 in that place had been abandoned by the staff, and when rescuers arrived a week later with bleach and body bags, they weren't at all prepared for what they found. There was no joy, just troubled amazement. The old people were alive. Dehydrated, of course. The new home his mother had been placed in was a continuing care facility, similar to the one that had washed away, though this one was constructed on a soccer field that had been built over a tailings-filled wash, which had once been the principal drainage for a mountain that had been topped for a dozen astrophotometrical telescopes. Since the personal effects of all the patients from the old home, not just the six left to rot on Wing 3, had been lost, the ambient staff had placed in each new room framed photographs of attractive people enjoying lovely things. It was a generous, non-sui-generous approach that had worked out well. There were zero complaints, particularly since these photographs were shifted about weekly to create diversity and a fresh dynamic in each tenant's private environment. This had the added benefit management maintained of providing the professional caregivers with a little fun to keep their spirits up, for otherwise they'd be simpering, who's the president, who's the president, every other time they entered a room. Henry climbed the great steps and entered the lobby. There was the banner, as commanding and insouciant as ever. He felt uncharacteristically bold enough to say to the receptionist, how awful to use Rilke like this. It's the risk poets run in their endless attempts to transfigure reality. Reality circles around and bites them in the ass. The receptionist was a man of indeterminate age with a skin disorder. 
His face was raw, the skin seemed quietly percolating. He dug at his jaw and regarded Henry. Henry closed his eyes. It was only a matter of time before a hole would create itself from the weeping slough of the man's face, presenting a glimpse of the preposterous fundamentals, rather like the truth window in a straw house. Do I have to sign in or anything, Henry finally asked. No, no, you know the drill. Henry fled, though he did not, having visited infrequently to his intermittent shame, know the drill. After some difficulty, he managed to find his mother's room. She was sitting upright, wearing an elaborate flamingo pink bed jacket with large padded buttons. She looked at him sympathetically as he searched for a place to sit. The room was cluttered with most of the space taken up by a dark credenza, upon which baskets and boxes and vases were stacked. He remembered the credenza. It had held table silver in his childhood, each place setting stored in its own pocket of cloth. In the curves of the massive thing, he had concealed his plastic soldiers. He'd had two favorites. One was poised to throw a grenade. The other had a flamethrower holstered on his bent back. Each had a bland face beneath, a helmet. Henry extended a hand tentatively to see if they were still there, then drew it back. Better not to know. The photograph on the bedside table was of two blonde children throwing bread to a peacock. The peacock had turned from the mirror that kept it entertained in its pen toward the pieces of falling bread. Henry pulled an animal's traveling crate close to the bed and sat on it. There was a frayed leather identification tag on the grill of the crate. It had been chewed. We have to speak quietly, his mother said. Debbie's on the other side of the curtain there. She's into dystopian video games, and she's very, very good. Thank you, hon, came a frail voice. I didn't know you had a roommate, Henry said. I thought we, you, were paying for a private room here. I have friends, Henry. I suppose you don't. That does not surprise me. When you were a boy, the other children would draw a circle around you in the playground and tell you you couldn't break through it, and you couldn't. Perhaps that happened once, Mother. Oh, it was more than once. The crate shifted beneath Henry and bumped the table, causing the picture to rock, though it did not fall. Do you know who these people are, he demanded, wanting to change the subject from that darn circle that had bedeviled him so. Of course I don't. Gertrude brought that in here, tried to make me think I had forgotten my own children. Gertrude's been in the business for years and hasn't suffered a single suicide, won't even permit us to stop eating. She says that no one must anticipate God's absolving hand. We call her St. Gertrude. So you don't know who these children are, Henry said stubbornly. You think you're on your way to doing something, and you're just stopping by for a moment. Is that correct? Yes, for a visit. Maybe he wouldn't tell her about his diagnosis after all. She didn't seem to be in a receptive mood. We pity visitors. There are just us Gnostics here, and Goth Deb. We maintain that the world is an illusion. The unconscious self is consubstantial with perfection, but because of a tragic fall, it is thrown into a foreign domain that is completely alien to its true being. 
It's always a fall, a tragic fall, and here we are. That's it, in a nutshell. Goodness, Mother, when did you come up with all this? The last coherent conversation he'd had with her had concerned some urinary tract infection. Yarn painting class, and sometimes when we do that low-impact foot exercise, thoughts come. Some consider Gnosticism flawed, an individualistic, nihilistic, escapist religion incapable of forming any kind of true moral community. But naturally, we disagree with that assessment. Henry could not conceal his alarm. Oh, don't look so frightened. You were always such a frightened little boy. I stuck too closely to the recommended guidelines when I was raising you. You've never talked this way before, Mother. He felt the crate buckle a bit beneath his weight. Surely you realize that what we're saying here is very different from what you visitors think you're hearing. Though I do wonder what's getting through to you, Henry. He had been allowed to shine the silver with a round, almost weightless sponge that fit perfectly into the tin of polish. He had been permitted to kiss his infant sister in her coffin. He had placed one of his soldiers beside her, couched in a pucker of silk. He had said that it was his favorite one, but it was not. It had never been his favorite one. I'm sure you were given the opportunity to learn a thing or two in this life, but the learning was so inappropriate to your situation that your not understanding was assured. Are you still writing those sappy articles, Henry? You sent them to me for the longest while. They were seldom subjects of discussion here. You wrote much that was regrettable. I'm a nature writer, he protested. The world has changed. I only try to provide something formally recognizable that people can take comfort in. His infant sister's forehead had felt like a feather. Your father and I always found the world to be unfamiliar, but it was the custom then to behave otherwise. We made every effort to reassure you and would have done the same with your sister had she lived. The door opened and someone cried, Who's the president? From behind the curtain came a weary giggle. With the door once more shut, the room resumed its pestilential pallor. A large crazed platter was displayed on the credenza. It had been brought out only on special occasions, whereupon Henry's mother would always say, Darwin married a Wedgwood heiress, which was why he could afford to think whatever nutty thing he wanted. There's so much stuff in here, Henry fretted. It's practically a fire hazard. What stuff, Henry? For a writer, you do choose words that lack evocative distinction. There was a harrow in the corner. A harrow? There couldn't be a harrow. It was just something he remembered rusting behind a barn, a barn around which an addled old dog of theirs had worn a worry trail. There is no stuff, she continued. The trees are no longer trees, nor are the children children. You'll see. The credenza couldn't be here either, Henry decided. It had been destroyed in the flood. It was possible that it had been destroyed even before the flood, but it was not possible that it was here now. He felt better having arrived at this determination, though the credenza remained. 
Perhaps it thought it was a credence and not a credenza at all, one that had fallen in the manner of an unlucky angel to the blasphemous station of a mere sideboard. Whatever it was, it was allowing him no quarter. Why is your mouth open like that, Henry? Are you thinking? Mother, I'm afraid I have some rather bad news. I'm going to die soon. According to the doctor, I'm dying. Just like you, he added unnecessarily. After a moment, she said, Oh, well. Take that, you fucker, Deb murmured behind the curtain. He wondered what the old woman looked like, though it was probably irrelevant. We were handed a very imperfect deal, Henry, his mother said. She sipped from a tall, fluted glass filled with a green liquid, the inviting color of antifreeze. Goodness, mother, is that a stinger? Yes, it is. Why do you look so aggrieved? As a child, you so often wore an expression of aggrieved expectation. You always wanted what someone else had. I certainly don't want a stinger, mother. I'm surprised they're allowed in here is all. Gnostics often use the terms drink or drunkenness to depict the pathetic fate of the entrapped spirit, but we don't take that literally. In any case, an exception is made in regard to stingers. Manhattans as well. Those things are crazy. Language, language, Henry. It's important to be precise. I had a stinger once, Henry said. I got so sick. He suddenly felt that he could make anything appear in this room, anything he wanted. His father's rack of pipes, the bird's nest he had destroyed on a dare, anything. His old dog, breathing heavily in dream. This was a magic place. He couldn't do it with words. He had never been able to do it with words. He looked around greedily. The cupcake that homely little girl had made for him in fourth grade, for he was homely too. The lake they'd lived beside once, its water on his skin. It was just a matter of control, of acceptance, of linking the two. Not difficult. Why had he not come here more often? He smiled and raising his hand as if for further permission, just as suddenly realized that he could not make anything appear in this room. He had never seen that lurid bed jacket before. The buttons were as big as baseballs. He wished his mother had made more of a fuss over what he'd told her, or any fuss at all. But as a rule, we depreciate matter first and foremost, his mother was saying. Only the knowledge that results in self-transformation is necessary. Resurrection comes first. Death follows after. Unimportant. One who does not know himself knows nothing, Henry. I don't feel well, Mother. It may be one of those rolling heart attacks. Won't kill you, but makes you queasy. But on a lighter note, here's my question. Do you think there's a moral weight to our actions? We're sort of divided in regard to that question here. There are those who think that the middling among us perish forever. Others feel that if we've performed our duties in a more or less decent fashion, we will continue to muddle on in some manifestation, on an altogether different plane. Still others argue that it's perfectly acceptable 
to have confounded right and wrong throughout one's life, and that there's not a sliver of difference between the two. I haven't an opinion, he said moodily. How desolate it was in here. A fluorescent bulb warbled listlessly above them. A pair of muddy gardening gloves lay at the edge of the coverlet. No, I do have an opinion. I think it's folly to wonder about these matters here now, at your age. Folly, he emphasized. Was it the right word? It would have to do. His mother's face grew pale. She seemed about to cry. I suppose I'd select muddle on in some manifestation, he allowed. Regaining her composure, she once again regarded him with exasperation. The gardening gloves slipped off the coverlet and disappeared in the dark, whorled pattern of the rug. I have a radical silence group in twenty minutes, she said, consulting a delicate watch on her bony, spotted wrist. Goodbye, Henry. But I just got here, he muttered. Still, he clumsily vacated the animal crate, jostling the framed picture again. The representation didn't seem to be the same. There were similarities, many similarities, but what did he know of the peacock? It is thirsty, always thirsty, and its tail is not a tail, but a feathered train, a magnificent and seemingly unnecessary train. This didn't seem much to know. Will you be able to find your way out, his mother said. He nodded, somewhat stung by her dismissal, and exited into the hallway which was empty and cruelly illuminated. On a monitor, news of the weather scrolled by. The winds were moderate. They had no special names. He felt oddly that he had been robbed and that the robber was within him now. Even so, he would have to find the lobby, avoiding the receptionist if possible, then brave the outside, where there would be darkness and steps to navigate. That was Joy Williams reading her story, Stuff. Her first story in The New Yorker was published in May of 1981. You can hear more New Yorker fiction read by the authors on newyorker.com and on the New Yorker apps, available from the App Store or from Google Play. On the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, we invite writers to choose stories from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, Ben Lerner reads Woven, Sir by John Berger. You can subscribe to that and other New Yorker podcasts by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. The weekly audio edition of The New Yorker is available on iTunes or audible.com. Tell us what you thought of this podcast by rating and reviewing the author's voice on iTunes. Our theme music is by Jordan Batiste and Ross Michaels of North American Plastics. The author's voice is produced by Alex Barron and Jill Duboff of NewYorker.com. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.